Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion of Lamb Ministries, and welcome to our program, Insight into Isaiah. We are in the midst of the study, and so in this program, we're going to pick up where we left off and continue uh, with our study. If you have your Bibles, open up to Isaiah chapter 45. And uh, when I, in the last program that I was sharing with you, uh, God is, it's through the prophet Isaiah here, is stating his case uh, for why he is a supreme God and a supreme power. And he's taking issue in the contrast against idols and other false gods. And so he's making his case emphatically by proclamation and comparisons that he is truly superior. He is truly the God, and others are not. And it, it, it's a call against those that were into idolatry, those that would look to another place or another entity to be an aid to them when, in fact, it's the business of God uh, to be doing what he does. So with that said, let me jump into here to chapter 45, and we're going to take up the rest of our study beginning at verse 20. So join with me now as I read a bit. Gather yourselves and come, draw near together, you fugitives of the nation. The fugitives of the nation, let me just mention this, is, is Israel. It's the remnant of Israel that is scattered abroad, that isn't living in the land. And so it's, it's a reference to Israel and the people that belong to the Lord. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior? There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. I have sworn to myself, and the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness, and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength, and men will come to him, and all who are angry at him shall be put to shame. Is the Lord um, in the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. Um, what is being expressed here by Isaiah is a very interesting point, I guess you could call human nature. Um, when you're a fugitive and you're kind of stuck in a, in a place, what you have a tendency to do is when you start to assess your life, you begin to only go back as far as to how you got to where you're at. Uh, this happens here for people in the United States. Um, uh, I was just talking with some friends about ancestry and, and so forth. You know, we stop our ancestry search at who came to the, to the United States or to the country that we're in. It's very rare that we're able to look beyond that and go forward. And essentially what Israel was doing and the fugitives do, they would start kind of the time frame of trying to understand their lives from the time that they first became fugitives. They don't take it all the way back. 
The Jewish people do this. They take it back to when they started to be called Jews, but they don't take it back to the Hebrew definition. They don't take it back to Abraham and Moses and, and those. They, they, they just take, okay, we're just Jews, and we'll just take this definition of Jews, and we'll just lay it on everything over there when, in fact, that, that wasn't there at all. I'll give you a comparison. Let's say I'm talking about American history. And I want to remind you about George Washington in the Revolutionary War when he crossed the Delaware that night, you know, with the Californians. And then that's when he won a great victory in the Revolutionary War. Well, you should be taking issue with me because there were no Californians back then. Why would I just call, well, Californians are Americans and they were Americans. Why can't I just call them all Californians? Because they weren't Californians. We're using the definition, I'm using the definition based on the 50 United States rather than going back to the real history of what took place. God is making this argument, why don't you go all the way back to when I started things? Like in the case of Israel, why don't you go all the way back to when I was the creator? All the way back when I, I, I got connected with your fathers, when I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why don't we go all the way back to when I was the God who commissioned Moses to bring you guys out of Egypt? Why don't we go all the way back to that, and then you'll get a proper perspective on who is God and how do we get here. Because one of the best arguments for proving God is to go back to the very earliest things and say, well, where did all this stuff come from? You know, and the contemporary argument that we have today, proving God, the best way to prove God, I'm, I'm really, I'm serious about this. The best way to prove God existence is go back to the beginning. How did this happen? How did that happen? What's the explanation of this? Where did those people come from? For us in the faith... And this is a, uh, a strong point I want to make. Isaiah is making this point to Israel in his day. I want to make the following point to all of my brethren in the day we're living. If your definition, spiritual definition, starts with Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, you do not know the Lord. You do not know who the Messiah really is. You, you have a definition about the Messiah, you have a definition about what you think God was doing, and uh, essentially you are in great error. And it misleads you into spiritual principles, spiritual laws, and things of that nature. And great consequences have been born uh, by our brethren, those that have been for us, because of that silly little mistake. Um, Isaiah is making the argument. Let's go all the way back. Let's, you know, you bring your best argument. Let's go back. Who declared the former things? You know, let, you want to compare your God. Let's compare your God. How far does he go back compared to me? Oh, he only goes part way back? Well, he obviously is not God. Um a couple of years ago, I'll share a personal story. A couple of years ago, in fact, it was when um, 
my kids were uh, both going to uh, college. The, there was a religious group on the college that decided to hold this little forum, and they wanted to invite different leaders of different spiritual segments of the faith and invite them to come in and gave them an opportunity to make a little short presentation about their group, their denomination, their church, uh, and just to, for comparative purposes. It wasn't a debate amongst them. It was just uh, for comparative purposes. And because they knew I had this Jewish background and I was a Messianic Jew, they invited me to come and be a speaker for that. I wasn't really sure who was all going to be on the desk and so forth. And I said, well, I'll come and I'll, I'll give testimony. Well, when I got there, there was a Catholic priest there. There was some big Methodist guy there. Uh, there was a Mormon there. And I found out what was really happening was that the Mormon Student Association had really put this thing on because it was a way for them to, in a, to kind of present the Mormons in a very acceptable atmosphere. They're just a different version of Christianity, and, and they're trying to promote uh, their goals to the student body. So they invited first um, the Catholic priest to come up. And they said, share with us how you began and so forth. And he began to say, the Catholic priest said, well, we began um, with uh, when Jesus Christ came and he went on the cross and he established the new covenant. That, that's when we began. And we're Catholics, you know, from that. And they invited the Methodist guy to get out there. And so he tells back a couple of hundred years ago, about Wesleyan and about how he had a revival and, and did this type of Bible study, this very diligent Bible study. That's where we get the term Methodist, their particular method of studying the Bible. And it was very unique in that day. And they were very devout. And so that's where the Methodists came from. So then the Mormon guy gets up, and he says, well, he talked about John Smith and, and uh, Brigham Young and being in the United States and the Latter-day Saints and so forth, and, and that's, that's where they came from. And then they asked me to get up and explain where I come from. And it suddenly hit me, you guys are all a bunch of Johnny-come-latelys. Because I got up and I said, I originate from a man named Abraham. Not some recent thing. The God I serve is the God of creation, including the Messiah, including all the prophets, including this entire book, not part of the book, the whole book. And it became, it was almost embarrassing. And uh, I think the tables got turned on the group that went to hold it because when they opened it up for Q&A from the audience, uh, the only guy that was getting questions and getting an opportunity to share more was me. They, only, they wanted to know more about me and, and my understanding of things as opposed to anybody else. And it struck me that that's one of the interesting things that has taken place throughout the history of mankind, those that drift away from the Lord. 
they, for some reason, lose sight of the earliest things. Um, people like to read the book of Genesis, but do they think that there's any profound teaching in the book of Genesis for them? I'm talking about my Christian brethren. No. There's no principles of the faith in there, according to them. If you want to really learn the principles of faith, you've got to go to New Testament, listen to what Jesus said, and read the letters of Paul. Au contraire, what a huge mistake. The whole definition of all of the words that we use in the faith, from the word faith to righteousness, salvation, sanctification, holiness, all of that is defined way back there. It has not recently been defined. Well, again, let me reiterate. What Isaiah is doing here is he's trying to draw uh, the reader and the audience to look back and say, wait a minute, let's stop and evaluate the God that you're serving. Where does he come from? Where do you start your thinking in terms of this is what I'm a part of, this is the faith I belong to, um, and this is what we believe? Where, where do you start from it? It bothers me greatly when I hear my new covenant brethren, the, the churchmen, when they like to talk about the Messiah, but they have no concept of where he came from. They have no concept of why did he come and have to do the work of redemption. What's, what's the logic behind that? Why, why did he have to die for our sins? And, and, what, and how is it that he accomplishes that? How can we have confidence one, as to who the Messiah really is, and how can we have confidence, just because he dies on the cross for us, that that, that means something spiritually, and that's, that, that's our ticket to eternity. How do we know that? A lot of people just take it completely for granted, which, by the way, then sets the stage for the moment that your faith gets seriously challenged, you give up. Because you don't have a basis of truth, a foundation of principles that you don't have the profundity of God himself supporting you. Instead, you're just religious. And you might as well be, you might as well be a, a Catholic or a Methodist or a Mormon. Who cares? Who cares? Which one? They're all, they're all like the same. They're all Johnny-come-latelys. And so do they have a relationship with the Creator God? Do they have a relationship with the God that was with Noah and the ark? Do they have a relationship with God who called Abraham away from his father's house to go and establish his family and the promised land? which is what the kingdom is all based on, the promised land. Um, that's, that's where Isaiah is bringing this out. You know, how, you know like verse 21, let me, let me read that again to you. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? You know, who, who told you this stuff from way back a long time ago? 
And is it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior? That's, no, that's nobody else back there. It's just me, and that's where you came from. So you don't need to artificial make up a story and, um, and try to make it, it take place. We are in the season of winter, and, um, and every time we come to the season, especially in December, as we approach Christmas, we're probably talking about the most serious spiritual activity for Christians to take place during the entire year. Some might argue for Easter, uh, but I really think it's Christmas. I think that's when all the Christians get warm feelings you know, about being Christians and giving and loving and peace on earth and joy and, you know, the whole bit and so forth. So their faith begins at the birth of the Messiah. It doesn't begin at the promise of the Messiah. It doesn't begin when there was a realization that there's sin in the world and death and we need to find a solution for that. It doesn't begin with the prophets or Moses or Abraham. Let me, I'm going to emphasize my point here and then I'm going to move on. If you just only studied Abraham, if all you did was take the passages of Scripture in the book of Genesis about Abraham, I can teach you the entire faith and everything that Yeshua came, the Messiah came teaching. And everything that Paul writes his letters about. In fact, Paul's letter to the Romans, the, probably the most serious theological book in the New Testament, is all about a reminiscing about what did we learn from God and Abraham. What we learned from God with Abraham was that his faith was counted for righteousness. That that righteousness is the intimate friend of justice. That with justice, it requires sacrifice or payment. And with sacrifice, you receive salvation. All of that is taught in how God dealt with, with Abraham. He also goes on to teach a couple other things. Where's obedience fit in this? Well, obedience produces blessing. Disobedience brings on curse. That's taught with Abraham. Or how about this one? Hospitality leads to intercession. That's taught with Abraham. The, the first personal name, the first personal relationship with God is when he called Abraham his friend. That's the first time, and, and, and basically God reaching out to mankind began with Abraham to establish his family, his sons, his promised son, that would become many descendants uh, in the world. And it continued down through three generations of fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God, through the fathers, laid the whole structure out for a whole people and a whole world to know who the Lord is and have a relationship with him. If you don't begin your spiritual principles, the basis of your spiritual faith, 
with the God of long ago, and you take a shortcut. Well, I don't want to deal with that. I'll just we'll call that history, and we'll we'll just pick it up here at the best part. You know, we'll take up the part here with uh, with the Messiah and show up. It's a little bit like trying to eat an ice cream cone with no cone. You're going to get the cream. You're going to get the sweet stuff. But you're also going to have a mess. You know, you got to get the stuff that supports it for you to be able to deal with it correctly. All right. I've made my point on that. That's what Isaiah is essentially uh, challenging us to come to terms with. Let's look now at chapter 46. This is the one I really want to get into. It begins, Bel has bowed down. Nebo stoops over. The images are consigned to the beasts and the cattle. The things that you carry are burdensome. A load for the weary beast. They stooped over. They're bowed down together. They could not rescue the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. You who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb, even to your old age, I shall be the same. And even in your graying years, I shall bear you. I have done it. I shall carry you, and I shall bear you, and I shall deliver you. Let me just tell you, personally, those are very meaningful words to me. I am so glad to hear the Lord speak that way toward me and and us. You see, deep down in my heart of hearts, I believe I'm not happenstance. I came into this world, and even though I didn't even know who I was, and nobody else knew about me, the Lord knew about me. The Lord knew who I was even before I was physically born. And he decided, I'm going to be in the world. And even though I was a youth, was incapable of caring for myself, I look back on my life and I see the instances and the times when the Lord took care of me. He made sure I was okay. I grew up in a very poor, humble setting. I didn't starve to death. Thank goodness. I had enough clothes. I had a shelter. I had a bed. But to sleep in. There's a lot of people in the world that don't get those things. I did. Do I look back on that and say, oh, well, that was the circumstance? No, no, no. I look back on that and I say, you know what? That's an evidence to me that God knew me and he was, he was interested in me and he was taking care of me. And he used whatever method, but the end result was that the Lord was doing it. But then he goes further to say, Even in your old age, I shall be the same. Even in your graying years, I shall bear you. I have done it. I shall carry you. I shall bear you, and I shall deliver you. Well, I'm not that little boy anymore. I've lived nearly now almost 70 years. And oh, by the way, uh, when you're first born (laughs) and you're just a little guy, uh, your ability to deal with things in the world, you know, is uh, limited. Uh, you just haven't grown enough, you know, and so forth. But when you get to be an older man like me, 
you also discover that your world has become severely diminished as well. Because I don't have the strength anymore. The age has crept up on me. The fatigue has come. The, 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 uh, they may be all original parts, but they're not new. Um, and uh, I've got a T-shirt at home. I, I probably and it says, um, uh, "Born in the '40s." Um, let's see, all original parts. Some still working. That's you know, a shirt about my body. And what? How is it that I continue to maintain as long as I am? How? How am I going to make it next year? Okay, I have diabetes, I have heart AFib, got high blood pressure, uh, I've got all these different consequences of physical things, weaknesses coming into my life, uh, things catching up with me, whatever you want to call it. So who's going to keep an eye on me and keep me going? The Lord? The same God that took care of me when I was a youth. He hasn't changed. He said, I bore you then, and I will bear you now. And the, the parallelism is for Israel. I, the Lord, brought you forth, Israel, into this world, and I, the Lord, will be there and take care of you at the end. I, I am going to take care of you. And to me, personally, as I shared with you before, I take great solace in this because um, one of the one of the things you do as you get older is you deal with your mortality you know i am i got a whole lot more runway behind me than i have runway in front of me to land this plane <laughs> and somehow i gotta land this thing correctly and it's not like i used to be when i was a youth where i was bulletproof and uh, there was nothing that could stop me, you know, and I, of course, it was all false thinking about myself, but, but uh, it's definitely changed. And, but God has not. The God who started that relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same God that when the Messiah came, he's the same God. And today, even after the Messiah has come and done the work of redemption, that God is still the same God operating today. And anybody advocating to you, well, God has changed. It's different now. That would be false. He has not changed. He's still doing exactly what he said he was going to do, exactly as he's planned it. He is carrying it out. And by the way, time here on the earth does not stop him from doing what he's doing. He's eternal. And the temporary nature of life and so forth to us right now does not affect him. He continues to remain faithful to us. So here we are now, verse 5. To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me, that we should be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. They bow down. Indeed, they worship it. 
They lift it upon the shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It does not move from its place, though one may cry to it. It cannot answer, and it cannot deliver from his distress. Um, that's a, a, a very simple, straightforward picture of, of idolatry. Idolatry is, is taking something that you value, such as gold or silver, and doing something, molding it in some form, setting it up, and, 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 and placing it in your life in a place of prominence and importance, and, uh, and, and say, well, that's God. And not realizing, you know, the reason why it's there is because you put it there. It's not because it was a God who decided to be there. It, you put it there. And oh, by the way, because you put it there, when you cry out to it, it doesn't do a thing for you. The absurdity of idolatry. And essentially, if you're not recognizing the creator God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, you got something else going on, and it's not going to help you. It is wrong, and it is false, and it's not going to help you a bit. Verse 8, remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, I will accomplish all my good pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass, I have planned it, surely I will do it. Essentially what God is saying here at the moment is, everything that's in this earth, including everybody that's here, I planned this. And by the way, they're here for my purpose. And by the way, they're going to do exactly what I purposed them to do. They are not God. They will not be deciding this. I'm the one that's doing this. Now, for us as finite men, okay, let me just say, for those of us who mortals, that is a very difficult concept for us to come to terms with. Because we're trying to figure out where's our free will in this, how do we make decisions, how do, how do we operate in this environment. Um, you know, there's, if everything has been destined by God and planned by God, I mean, what's, what are we doing here? What is this all about? You know, what's our purpose? You know, and those kinds of things. It, it's not, this is not trying to diminish man or our lives, or the value and benefit of our lives whatsoever. This is explaining how powerful God really is. There is a phrase here that caught the attention of the sages of Israel that really intrigued them. And by the way, uh, I've gone through the same thing, and other brethren that I know, they're spiritually mature. It's this phrase from what I just read. Remember the former things long past. For I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. 
Okay, um, let's see. I've got a portion of the book. If I go all the way back, it says, in the beginning. Genesis 1.1. And he says right here, he says, to demonstrate to you just how powerful I am and how my plan works, you go back to the beginning and I'll show you the plan for the end. And the sages of Israel said, when did God tell us about the end while he was telling us the beginning? And so they went back to Genesis 1 in the beginning. Now, let me recount to you very briefly what, what is in Genesis 1. It's the story of creation. Six days of creation and then the Sabbath that God created. Now, if you recall, while well, on the first day there was light, on the second day there was waters, and on the third day there was... Uh, uh, I'm trying to remember here real quickly. There's, I believe it was uh, a seed and, and the land, you know, that took place. And on the fourth day, there were animals. Um, oh, the fourth day, it was lights in the heavens. On the fifth day, there was animals, uh, creation. On the sixth day, man was created. And then on the seventh day, we had um, the Sabbath. I'm sure you've heard this verse before. It's in Psalms 40 and a couple of places in the New Testament. It says, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. That concept has been well known for years. It was known in the days of the patriarchs. It was known in the days of Israel. And somebody pulled the correlation together. This is back many years ago. You know, if we look at the history of the world from the biblical definition standpoint. We can see a pattern here where for every thousand years of biblical history, it corresponds to that day of creation. You know, that there was the first day was light, and he separated the light from the darkness. And in the first thousand years, the dominant story is about Adam when man was first created. And if you remember the story, Adam sinned and he brought darkness into the world and death. And he was separated from God. He was separated from God, the light. And so that, that, that you know, almost childhood simplified definition or teaching of the book, it lines up. In the second day, it was about the waters. In the second millennia, the second thousand-year period, the dominant story is about Noah and the flood, how the waters came over the surface of the earth and how the earth was really formed that we have today and how we have the structure of the earth that we have. And the third was about uh, plants yielding seed and we find out that in that same millennia, is that God established Israel. That's the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and the children of Israel, and, and Israel coming out of, uh, out of Egypt. And by the way, one of the definitions of Israel is the planting of the Lord. So that thematically fits with creation. And then in the fourth, um, it it's, uh, was about signs and seasons uh, that comes from the lights.
And they say that the kings and the prophets of Israel are the ones who show forth the signs and seasons of God. They were in that time zone, that thousand-year period is where all the kings and the, and the prophets were at. And then the fifth was when he brought forth uh, living creatures, and the Messiah came to us in that millennium to make us new creatures. In the sixth day, uh, man was created. He was told to fill the earth and subdue it. And in the last thousand years, that's exactly what mankind has done. We have now occupying the whole world in the last thousand years. Beforehand, we didn't have that many people. And we certainly weren't in all lands and in all places. And in the last thousand years of mankind leading up to today, man has not only filled out all the places of the world, but we have subdued it. We've left the earth, gone to the moon, and come back. We've gone to the highest mountain, deepest seas. Technology is now open to us. We are overcoming all manner of things, all of the sciences and so forth. Our knowledge is increasing and so forth. We have subdued this place, and and we're still in in the pursuit of it. But then the very next day is supposed to be the Sabbath. And the prophecy speaks to us of the Messiah coming for a thousand years called the last day to establish his kingdom so that God will then rest from his labors and we're commanded to rest with him in his kingdom. This understanding, this pattern is what has intrigued a lot of eschatology folks people that study the end time prophecy because one of the things that you can find this in the Talmud um, they saw the corollary that the Messiah should come at the fourth day when God created living creatures because they understood that the Messiah was supposed to come and make us new creatures when Paul when Paul said that and the book of Corinthians, you know, he's made us new creatures. He was talking about a concept that was well known amongst those that knew the Lord, that this is the thing the Messiah would do. And so he announced it. He's come. He's done that. He's made us new creatures. And the parallel is going back to when living creatures were made back in the creation story. That's where that originates from. That's, that's the whole concept. And in the Talmud, it says the Messiah should have come in the year 4,000 at the start of the fourth day. And the Talmud goes on to say, but because of the sin of Israel, he delayed his coming. Isn't that fascinating? Here's the sage of Israel saying, you know, the Messiah should have showed up back there, uh, but he didn't show up um, and we're still waiting for him. Uh, and the reason why he didn't show up is because of our sin and, and we weren't ready. I have a little modification to that saying. It says the Messiah did show up in day four of the creation story, but because of the sin of Israel, you were blind to him and you couldn't see him. You were in darkness instead of in light. Um, now, for us, it's very intriguing because... 
uh, we're coming to the end of days. Have you ever heard that expression before? Where's that come from? We're, we're talking about this concept, this teaching concept, the end of days of creation. We're coming to this big story of thousand years for a day and a day for a thousand years. And, um, you know, how close are we to filling out and completing the sixth day? How close are we to the start of the seventh day? Because the seventh day is the Sabbath rest. That's the millennial kingdom. That's the last day the prophets speak of, the last 1,000-year day. And how close are we to that? Well, uh, if you've done any eschatology uh, study whatsoever, everybody who does this study, everybody who's involved in this prophecy and so forth, they have concluded this one thing. They don't know exactly which year it is, but they do know it's in this generation. The sixth day is being completed. We're on the brink of the seventh day, which would mean, according to the other prophecies, that there's going to be this day of reconciliation. There's going to be when God is finished with his labors, when he is going to be reconciled to the world and his enemies are going to be defeated and he's going to establish his kingdom on this earth and we are going to dwell with him on this earth in his kingdom for a thousand years. Now, when exactly is it? Like I said, Eschatology students have been doing it all over the place, trying to figure it out. I've, in my lifetime, I've heard people trying to claim it's going to take place back in the 80s and then in the 90s, and the year 2000 was suggested, and other dates have come. Well, here we are at 2018, and we're still waiting for it. And so you got to step back and say, well, you know, is this concept true, or is this just Something kind of that we imagined and 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 uh, so forth. There's one statement in here that we really should take to heart, and this is what Isaiah has said to us. Verse 11, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. The assurity of that there is going to be a kingdom, is God's responsibility, and he says he will do it. That's where we put our faith at. We don't put our faith in, well, what do I think is going to happen? No, you put our faith in what did God say he was going to do, because that's what he's going to do, and that's what's going to happen. Now, I would love to know the exact details of his plan. <laughs> However, I have learned throughout my life that he uh, only shares those things with me and the insights that, he, that I can handle. Because I'm telling you, his job as ruler of the universe is a little too much for me to carry on my shoulders. I, I, and even here on the earth, you know, I'm not the ruler of the world. I can't handle being the ruler of the world. I, I, I barely can take care of my own life, let alone take care of the rest of the world. So I'm glad he's doing this. I'm glad it's him who has the burden on these things. I get to just rest in him and believe him. And the scripture tells me that 
as a result of doing it, that will be my righteousness. I'm doing the right thing for it. And so every person can be a part of it. This last paragraph of chapter 46 says, Listen to me, you stubborn-minded, who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. My salvation will not delay, and I will grant salvation in Zion and my glory for Israel. Just kind of caps it off, and it says, my salvation is true. And when I get done with this whole thing and establish the kingdom, it's going to be glorious. It'll be worth it. So that's the encouragement that we get from uh, Isaiah. Isaiah has basically made this sermonized argument for the last several chapters about let's come to terms with who God is. And there's no one like him. And by the way, he has a plan and he's carrying it out. And we can rest in him and have confidence in him. It's all going to work out according to his perfect plan. Amen? All right. That is our part for the study of Isaiah This in this program. We'll be taking up chapter 47 in our next program. Shalom, everyone.